All right, well, welcome to the Christ Community Shawnee Campus Podcast. This is Tim Spanberg here with Joseph Weeks. Hey. (laughs) I try to to do the Tim. I do it better. Uh, (laughs) That's okay. Listen, I think a couple podcasts ago, we both hated on Kansas because I'm from Indiana and you're from California. Right. So let's, let's begin with our favorite our favorite parts of living in Kansas. What what is your favorite part of living in Kansas? Oh man, I have to start this. <laughs> um, you know, I th- I find wow, it's hard for me to come up with some. I'm just kidding. You know what? Obviously there's the barbecue, but that's that's just too mm. that's too easy of an answer. I've lived in two global cities, LA, Chicago. I actually really like the mid the mid-America mid-sized city. I, 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 if it wasn't so cold, it's five degrees out right now. If it wasn't that, I could yeah. see myself really enjoying living here. <laughs> I, I, yeah. So that, that's my big thing. I love Kansas City in terms of its size and accessibility, those things. My favorite reason for living in Kansas City is because in the inevitable zombie apocalypse, it's going to be very easy to get to, ver- like, we're like an hour from where no one lives. And so, that's if you if you've watched The Walking it's, Dead, it is absolutely less than an hour. It's, it's like <laughs> that's true. It's, it's about thirty minutes it's west. About, it's about twenty five <laughs> minutes from where no one lives. And I feel like it's this would be this would be a place you could live a long time before the zombies get you. That's absolutely right. And the barbecue, the obvious is the barbecue, which is the best in in the world. So, all right, we're going from Kansas to the Old Testament law and narrative, and we're going to go right into what is smooth transition. Smooth, that was really smooth. <laughs> Right into what is, I think, two things that people really struggle with, which is the conquest narratives or the role of slavery in like books like Exodus and Leviticus. So we're, we're keeping it light is what you're saying. Yeah. So we go from zombie apocalypse to slavery in the Bible. So someone comes to you, Joseph, and says, hey, listen, the Bible is pro-slavery, and they read you a verse in Exodus Yikes. They probably wouldn't do that, but they if they had the verse in Exodus, they would read it. What what would you say to them? Wow, this is just like someone off the street just coming up. Um Man, I feel like I would first affirm, and I'd be curious to hear if this has ever been a struggle for you. I think I would first affirm that that this is a tough issue on the surface, right? That that in terms of our modern sensibilities, the idea of something that's supposed to be holy or from God sanctioning in some sort of way slavery, that that's a tough pill to swallow. And to think that God told people, again, on the surface to go into a land and, and totally annihilate their enemies. So I, I think I'd begin by just affirming, yeah, there's something about that that, that feels off on the initial glance. Um I don't know, is that something like in your faith journey or as you've like thought through Christianity or, or the truth of the Bible? Was that something that that was tough to answer or that, that yeah, I don't know. I think you have to deal with the fact that we're reading documents that were written in times that say things that do not land well in our modern culture. So, for example, Exodus 21, we have some laws about slaves. Um so how about this? When a man sells his daughter as a slave, <laughs> you're just going for it. <laughs> I mean, this is yeah. When a yeah. man when a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master, 
who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her. So we're, we have a man selling his daughter into slavery. So tell me, <laughs> what would you do with that? Well, so even if we want to even make it worse, <laughs> the <laughs> verses right before that says that talks about another man being sold into slavery, but he actually gets set free. So does that mean men get to be set free in this this, these daughters so, are less valuable. Well, so now we have slavery, we have sexism, man. We're we're in deep trouble here. Well, to, but here, how about this? So I actually used Exodus twenty one six as an excuse to get my ears pierced when I was in high school. No, wait, which part? I'm I'm not joking. <laughs> then his master <laughs> shall bring him to God, and he shall. So this is the slave could be free. But this is no. I want to stay with my. I want to stay with my my master. This just sounds awful. <laughs> and if that's what the slave wants to do, then what you do is you, you bring him to the door of the doorpost, and the master bears through his ear with an awl that he shall be a slave forever. So my like high school arguing self with my parents said, like, this is the my getting my ears pierced is a sign. Were they anti ears Oh, absolutely. Ears okay. Yeah, they were. Um, but this is my sign that like I am the Lord's and he's gonna bear a hole through my ear and it didn't work ultimately. I did get my ears pierced, but this did not work. Uh, but I tried to use Exodus twenty one six uh, as a reasoning for. Are my there parents. pictures for this? Because I there are absolutely pictures somewhere, but you're never going to get. Is it on your MySpace? Them. That is still. By the way, <laughs> go ahead and look up Tim Spanberg's MySpace. It's still in existence. I don't. I, don't, I think my ear piercings were gone at that point. Okay. No, I pierced my ear too. Is that a thing then that we all just go through as a little season of? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> Anyways, we we really. Um, that was a way of avoiding the hard question. It was okay. So, get, getting serious here, um, I think I think the first thing we have to do is disassociate um, slavery that existed here versus what we think of of slavery, which is the American context of slavery. And so, uh, what, what's actually not funny? Funny is not the right word, but is important to note is that the Old Testament actually condemns the practices of slavery that existed today mm-hmm. in the United States, uh, or, or not today, but uh, in the recent history of the United States. So, for example, Deuteronomy 24-7 uh, says that if someone kid- kidnaps another person and sells them into slavery, they will receive the death penalty. So that was exactly how our slavery system um, took place. Uh, Deuteronomy 23-15 says that you shall not return a runaway slave to his or her master. Again, that was something that was practiced in the United States. Um, Exodus 21, the the passage that you were reading from, actually says that after six years, a slave has to be released. So I think one of the important things is just to even show, like, actually the Bible, um, and and really this is important because during American slavery time, there were evangelicals who used the Bible as justification for slavery, and they were being very selective because they ignored these passages in the Old Testament. So I think it's be, it's good to just show that a text that existed far before eighteen you know eighteen hundreds America condemned the slavery that was in it. Um, the second the second thing is to understand what exactly uh, slavery existed for in the Old Testament. Um, and the reality is, is that slavery was basically a wel- a welfare system. Um, that you know, for us, if 
if we uh, run out of money, there's several things we can do um, that, that doesn't demand us to have to uh, be destitute without food, without all these things. We, we can file bankruptcy, X, Y, Z. Whereas if you lived in a society where it's based on agriculture and based on land and your land wasn't producing and you weren't able to uh, pay any tax, all of those things, then you're out of luck. You have nothing. What, what are you going to do? There's no bank to bail you out. And so what people would do is sell themselves or uh, give themselves over to another uh, person for a time so that they can recover from their debt in that allotted period of time. So it's in essence, at least in Israel, it was basically a welfare system. I'll pause there. There's, There's a lot more to say. I think what I would add is this is such a loaded question in our cultural context. Yeah. For one, this the awful abuse of human life that slavery was in our context, which is far worse. And it was bad in Rome and and, in, in uh, this culture as well. Like it it wasn't good. Like we're not saying that all slavery was, was lovely, but it was especially, it was particularly evil in our context because of the kidnapping, because the separation of families, because it was race-based, all those things make it uniquely evil. And then also we have the problem that Christians were we're justifying and arguing from the Bible for these wicked things. Right. So everything you just said, I think, is really is is helpful and important. It's like we've got to understand this is a different economic system than right. what we have. Slavery means very different things than it did then. There's some pretty significant guardrails around right. slavery, which we can get into. All of those things are really important. But what what's unique about our context is it comes so loaded because of church failure and I think the unique institution and evil of of slavery in our, our context. It's just, this is like just a, such a loaded context. Yeah, that's really important to know that how, again, our ears hear the term slavery with a lot of ugly history that we just take immediately into this text. And, you know, for example, Exodus 21.5 supposes a scenario. It says, but if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out as a free man, then... And he will be a he got slave. his ears pierced. Yeah, he did get his ears pierced, and so that justified Tim. But, <laughs> but it supposes a situation in that it could be more beneficial, like it, yeah. because of the way the the master treated this person, um, because of how it set him up economically and like in terms of safety and those kinds of things, that it could be a a decent enough situation to desire to stay in after the six years. So again, that is far a far different conception than. Again, 19th century American South. I think the other thing I would add is the Old Testament law is is trying to create a system where Israel lives in the land. So parts of Genesis through Deuteronomy is just like basic law. And sometimes basic law doesn't sound great because it's trying to constrain the brokenness of human beings. And so I think what's also important to read along alongside these laws about how to treat the slave, how to treat the poor, is also like Deuteronomy, which uh, I wish I, I should have looked up this reference. I want to say it's Deuteronomy 15.4, but don't quote me on that. That there's an assumption that if you live faithful to God, there should be no poor That's in the right. land. When you add the the Jubilee in the midst of that, which was every uh, every 50 years, debts, slavery, all slaves being released. Yeah, um, and, but debts, yeah. 
Uh, so uh, there was built, supposed to be built into the system, something that was radically different than what were the assumptions of the surrounding nations of yeah. the day. So, so again, it's, that's not to excuse all of the, like, you can get to a verse and read it, and it's like, this is brutal, um, and, and especially in our, our modern ears, and miss maybe some of the bigger, like, some of the bigger vision that's in the Old Testament law, which is if you obey the law, these things don't aren't issues. There's no poor. Um, the Jubilee takes care of people who, because of famine or the, I mean, listen, the economy in that day was incredibly fragile. Uh, obviously, it is in our own day, but but we have safety nets. They didn't because of our technology, because of um, the wealth we've accumulated. People were far more vulnerable then. And so, again, the Jubilee, there should be no poor among you. There's some some larger vision that I think has to be read alongside the law that's try that tries to constrain some of these these things. Yeah, and and I want to return to that what you initially brought up of of, the, of of a man selling his daughter. What what is going on in that situation? It's especially because it says she she shall not she shall not be uh, let go or or um, set free. And and what's important to note is actually in, in Deuteronomy fifteen twelve. All right. It talks about a similar scenario where it talks about both men and women, slaves, being set free after six years. And so that raises the question, then, what is happening in Exodus 21, 7 through 11? And I hope it's become clear that we've been able to navigate this conversation just by using uh, the Bible itself. But this piece needs a little bit of extra help um, from historical context, which is this. That uh, right when women were given in marriage, they were, um, you know, there there was a dowry, there there was a a payment. Now, if, um, for example, a father was unable to afford it, something that was uh, practice was they would give, uh, a, they'd make a contract with a man, and the contract would be, hey, she uh, will will be a servant in your family, right, working fields or whatever that looks like. And then once that contract is fulfilled, then there can be a marriage. Now, obviously, again, very different way marriage is done today. But what the provision is, is it's actually protecting this woman from being released by this man into destitution. And so it's actually a law protecting the woman from being sent out, or it even talks about uh, the, the man who's the contract is made with with the father, if he ends up choosing to marry someone else, then he is obligated to take care of this woman. He cannot break that contract. And so the context for that is actually one of protecting the vulnerable, protecting a woman. And so again, you know, going back to that scenario of someone coming up and saying, well, hey, this is what it says. It's like, all right, let's, let's slow down. Let's identify what we're bringing into this and then try to navigate this on its own terms. What, what are other parts of Scripture saying? What is the historical context? And can we be a little bit generous with a, a people group living 2,000 years ago trying to figure out economics, marriage, family, all of these things? That sounds nice, but let me push you a little bit. Yeah, this is good. On it, which is, so maybe someone says in response, but yeah, well, why didn't, why didn't God then lay out an economic vision for his people that didn't include slavery, that just include, that said there should be no slaves. Um, you shouldn't do that. Like, why, why does it seem like God plays within the system that 
I mean, the, or at least the the Old Testament laws kind of plays within these systems of slavery, of dowries for wives. Why not just blow those systems up and create a new a new system with God's Old Testament law? Yeah, that's a really good question, and uh, I think there's there's a couple of things that come to my mind, um, and I won't share these in any in order of importance. Just honestly, what comes to my mind first? Uh, so first of all is. And Jesus makes this really interesting statement in Matthew uh, 19, where they're actually talking about divorce. And uh, and so these Pharisees are like, well, if we have this certificate of, of divorce, you know, what's what's okay? What's How do we follow the law on this? And Jesus says something very interesting. He says, Moses gave you, only gave you this provision because of your hardness of heart. Now, what's interesting about that is that Jesus is basically saying this isn't the ideal. What what is given in in the law? Is, when I'm talking about the law, I mean uh, Old Testament law. What's given there is not necessarily the ideal, but it's a, it's accommodating a people in a particular place. Um, and so we see what what the ideal law is in the New Testament. Galatians three twenty eight. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. Um, and so I think that's a really important piece to know about the Mosaic law, which is why even, uh, the way Moses authors the book, uh, the, the Pentateuch, the first five books is basically to show like, this is going to fail and there's something new coming that will be better. So that would, that would be my first response. Um, do you have anything you want to add to that or? No, it's pretty good. And I think that, that tracks with your story of scripture lecture. So again, people who haven't seen that or haven't watched should really watch that because this the whole story of the Bible really informs this question of why, you know, Jesus even saying, I gave this to you for a hardness of heart because of hardness of heart. Like understanding what the role of Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy is in the Bible story can help with these questions of like slavery. Why, why, why didn't God just blow up the system? So, yeah. all right, keep going. Okay. So the second piece, and this is where I might get more controversial. I think a lot of people would, would disagree with me. Um, but we first had to think about the nature of law, and I wish I, I wish I had looked this up before, um, because there's there's certain distinctions in law, right? There's there's moral law that no, no matter w- in what situation, this is what's right to do, and from from moral laws, from different principles within law, such as it's good to have order. Um, you you receive different principles that actually meet your context. So, for example, it's illegal. For me to drive on the left side of the road. Now, if I was in uh, Britain, I would actually be driving on the left side of the road because that's the way that those rules work there. So it's it's right for me to drive on the right side of the road, even though that is not some transcendent law. So it's a principle that uh, it's, it's tapping into, for example, that we need order for safety in how we drive. So how does that connect? Well, the reality is I'm not sure I'm not sure there is a right a right way to have welfare, to to take care of people's debt. How do you do that? I'm I'm not I'm not I'm not convinced or I don't know that there is a perfect way to deal with that. I mean, obviously you reference that there shouldn't be any poor according to the law, right? The year of Jubilee, all of these things. But the reality is that there there is poor. And there are there are poor people. So what do you do with them? 
And in that context, I think you're dealing with a law just like, uh, should it, should I be able to drive on the right side of the road or the left side of the road? It's like, well, I don't know. It just depends on your context and how it works out. And I'm not necessarily convinced that this, the, sl- the slavery, quote-unquote slavery, or honestly, a- another term could just be servitude here um, in terms of translating the Hebrew. I'm not convinced that that is is wrong you know if it's to the if it's to the point that it could be beneficial enough for someone that they choose that for themselves for the rest of their life then to me that doesn't signal it's inherently bad um and so that's where i we have to reason like think about our welfare system how broken that is you know like to think that we have the answer um it's it's obvious that we don't and so we're dealing with broken systems broken societies and, and how do you operate within those? And this is a way in a very particular context where, where God makes very, very specific provisions to protect the vulnerable. But within protecting the vulnerable, there is wiggle room. So what matters most is protecting the vulnerable, but how you do it, there's some wiggle room. And I'm not convinced that this is necessarily wrong. Now, people would, would very much disagree that well, see, any I, idea of slavery I, is okay. I think you're saying two things. One is... Like actually, what's going on here is economics. It's this Exodus twenty one. What feels like an issue about slavery is actually an economic issue about right. how the poor who who find themselves in debt and destitution can continue to survive and and eat and have work. And one of the ways was sort of an indentured type of of right. servitude, slavery, how whatever word you want to they use. They had a clear end date and clear rules to protect those people. Yeah. So mm-hmm. one is economics, and then second, you're saying, well, when it comes to some of those economic questions, it's like we drive on the right side of the road in the U.S. and in England they drive on the left side of the road, and you could it doesn't matter ultimately. You could drive on the left side, and that's not morally wrong. You could drive on the right side, and that's not morally wrong. Um, and just like the finding ways to care for the poor. Are, are often morally, as long as they're in, not stripping the dignity of that person, right. it's a morally neutral claim. I think that that makes sense. I do wonder how many people would read these and wonder, is some of the stuff around slavery morally neutral, or does it tip right. to abusing the poor? And I, I think ultimately what what's important probably for folks is to recognize this is actually an economic question, not... Because, uh, again, as we dealt with, stealing, kidnapping people into slavery is wrong. Right. Right, splitting families uh, forcibly to sell them off, which would happen in the American South, that's wrong. Right. Um, and the scr- Bible explicitly yes. condemns that. How you deal with the economic poor is a much more complicated question than kidnapping other human beings. Right. right? I mean, that's that's sort of what we're saying. And again, all of this comes to this is why reading our Bible is really important, why, why having some of these tools... Um, is really important. So, all right, I'll give you the last. Anything else you want to say on slavery? Before no, I'm, I'm just I'm curious. Be, would you be? Are you okay with that answer? Would like, where? <laughs> would you? Would you? Or would you say like actually, the idea of someone being owned for six for six years is is not neutral. It is inherently wrong. Like, I think. I think. I would say like the United States concept of the pursuit of happiness, freedom, all that is like, that's a better vision for humanity yes. than, than indentured slavery. However, in the United States, like we didn't actually embody that legally. We didn't embody that until right. the mid 1960s. So that I think shows both, even when like you get the ideas right, which is the pursuit of happiness 
all men are created equal. Even the society that was founded on that really struggled to actually believe that legally until post Jim Crow segregation. Even that we continue to struggle with, um, uh, with issues of racism that, that were, you know, rooted in, in, in slavery. So I, I think the mind of the, the frame there, the example I had in my mind as you were talking was, you know, I just finished Tony Evans, uh, work called oneness embrace. And in that he goes through a key moment in his life was actually a, a Jewish businessman who gave him a job, let him work his way up. And that, that opened doors economically for him to go to college. Now he's one of the most famous preachers, pastors in the U S really faithful guy. But like that relationship to that Jewish business leader, he would say was really crucial to opening doors to go to college to have. And it's like, is that is while he wasn't owned in that sense, like maybe Exodus 21, folks who are wealthy and have access to resources, like benefacting those who are poor and who don't has to get worked out in healthy ways. And so I think that's where I would, I would agree with you that like there's, Exodus is trying to work that out. Right. And some of the law is is not saying this is God's designed way of how human beings should flourish, but is dealing with an unfair distribution of resources, the predisposition of the wealth to or wealthy to abuse the poor. And so that's a lot of what Exodus is trying to to get at. So anyway, there, there's a lot there, yeah. but that that would be my response. And I and we kind of glossed over this before, but I just want to highlight this again, which is that whether or not you agree with what I said doesn't like that's okay. But what's important to know is compared to the ancient Near East context, like this is far and away much more gracious and generous and loving and caring towards the vulnerable. Whereas you, the, the code of Hammurabi does not yes. operate like yeah. that. And so, um, in terms of its, its context, it's, it's far and above all the other uh, all the other laws, the codes around these things that totally are okay with dehumanizing people. Well, and again, to pull back, to, to build on a point I made earlier, why you don't want to lose the full story of Scripture is ultimately what's happening in Exodus is slaves who are oppressed by Egypt are being freed by God because he is he's heard the cry of their injustice. Yeah. And, and even what became a key uh, story element for... Um, uh, American slaves, African Americans, is the story of the Exodus, and that uh, why many of them became Christians is this story of oppressed people being freed became their rallying cry. That's why so many of the Negro spirituals are Exodus songs. Yes. Um, so even the broader story of God freeing slaves to worship Him in freedom. Yes. That's the whole narrative of Exodus. Even though you have these weird verses where it's like, why then? Why is there so? And over and over. God is reminding them, remember, you were once slaves in Egypt. Like, keep that at the forefront of mind. That's who you were. That is your lineage. So yes. treat, treat, the, treat the slave, treat the foreigner, treat the vulnerable as I have treated you. Yeah. All right, so... Uh, <laughs> Unless you're a Canaanite, which brings now, us to... <laughs> so then once the slaves are freed, then they're told to go into the land of Canaan... And kill a lot of people. Oh man! So what a good w- podcast. This let's is say, good. let's say, maybe you convinced people that slavery. Okay, like Exodus twenty one is not as bad as we thought. We got our ears pierced. Things are going well, but now we, uh, now we're we have genocide in Joshua. Yeah. <laughs> what, what do you? What are we doing with that? So here's what's interesting, and I realize I use that phrase a lot. Interesting. So we're just gonna keep rolling with it. Um. People don't get that upset at the flood. And it's either because I they think... 
I don't think. Do you think they do? I think they do. I think they just think it's like unbelievable. It never happened. Oh, that's true. Yeah. I that that's what I feel like. But whereas, so so right, the flood narrative is that the world was wicked. So the Lord brings about a flood, and it sands Noah and his family and some animals. Let's just roll with that. Is is the story that that that's what it's communicating? People don't get as upset about that as they do of of God proclaiming the or telling the Israelites to go into Canaan and to basically do the same thing, but instead of a flood, it's by walking around Jericho and and the Lord bringing about havoc through the Israelites, bringing about um, crushing. The Canaanites. And so, which that tells me that the key problem with this is not so much the Lord's judgment, but the fact that he would tell people to go and kill other people. Like, it's it's the people-to-people dynamic. Yeah, that makes sense. So, what do you do with that? <laughs> so, uh, this is just going to be the theme that we, or at least me, that I, that I always hit. Um we have to understand narrative uh, stories, passages in the context of the broader narrative. We, we just have to always keep that story in mind. Um, and so for me, there are a couple of things that I point to, uh, at least that, is, that assuages my, my conscience and helps provide me understanding. And really, so, so what you're talking about, right? When we talk about the ban, we're talking about, we're talking about when Moses... Uh, tells the Israelites in like Deuteronomy 7 to uh, go into the land of Canaan, right? The promised land. And when they get there, there are certain tribes that they are not to make covenants with and that they are to destroy. Um, they're given full sanction, like don't leave anyone alive. I mean, that's that's what it says. And so um, what what's the, what's the narrative le- leading up to that? Um, Genesis 15. God makes a covenant with Abraham. But when he makes a covenant with Abraham, after promising him a nation, land, seed, all of these things, he says to them, but before you get any of these things, your family, your descendants, are going to be enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. And he says, the reason that is, this is uh, Genesis 15, 12 through 16. I'm I'm actually going to flip there so I can read it exactly. He says, the reason this is, is because then in the fourth generation, they will return to the promised land, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. So there's a certain sense in which God is storing up wrath or judgment against those who are in Canaan. I mean, that's, that's his reasoning for allowing the Israelites to be in Egypt for 400 years. All right, so that's, that's one key part of the story. Another key part is the scene that um, that happens with God and Abraham over the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. So I don't know, I don't know if you, you remember this. Um, basically, God shows up, tells Abraham, I'm going to go destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham's like, well, shoot, my, my boy Lot and his family are in Sodom and Gomorrah. And so he starts asking God questions. He's like, well, if there's, you know, surely you would not punish the righteous with the wicked. And the Lord affirms that. And so then Abraham says, well, if there's 50 people who are righteous in, in Sodom and Gomorrah, will, will, you, will you not destroy the city? And God's like, I will not destroy them. And then he slowly goes down from 50 to 40 to 30 to 20 to 10. And he stops at 10. 
assuming that probably in his mind that covers got to be 10 that that's lots family yeah. or my other theory is that the story gets answered uh, of like well what about the one it gets answered through the narrative where only where lot gets sla- saved anyways all that to say god affirms that he's not going to destroy this city if there are 10 10 righteous people in other words if we apply that to this other situation, the Lord really is identifying wickedness that, that he's not seeing innocent people in the land of Canaan. I'm going to pause right now because I don't... Are, are you tracking this? Right, so, gen- so the reason why genocide is okay in your mind... <laughs> <laughs> it's not complete yet. Come on. Uh, so the reason Je- uh, Joseph is pro-genocide is, number one, uh, oh because uh, <laughs> God lets people get super wicked... And then two, uh, God will not will not slay the righteous with the wicked, and that that principle comes out very clearly in Genesis eighteen. So that when when we're moving into Canaan, we're dealing with a level of evil and wickedness that's pretty significant. Yeah, and and just to give an example, um, so the the Canaanites, right? They have different gods, um, but but one of the gods that they served was Moloch, and Moloch, um, you know, I, do you know what exactly Moloch represented for them? The Canaanites. I don't. I don't either, but that's tangential. Um, the way that, that you worshipped Moloch is is through sacrificing infants, sacrificing mm-hmm. your kids. And this actually becomes a heinous a heinous thing that the Israelites do later on. So, I mean, we're, we're talking about some pretty significant sin. Um, so th- this is building up. But, but what's important is that what God is doing is... He's prepping this land, this, this new people, right? If we go back to the story that, that we talked about, the story of the covenants, God is, has uh, removed and started over with Noah, right? And then there's unrighteousness. And I think what you have is a very similar example with the Israelites. He's starting over in the promised land, in, in land. Like that theme is so important, right? Adam and Eve are given, are given land, Right, that theme is so important—a land that is to be steward—and he's saying, "I'm, we're, we're removing the wickedness, and you are to to live in the land to worship me." And this is the key idea. God makes it clear: the reason why you are to uh, destroy them is not only to be uh, the instruments of his of his judgment and his wrath, but also so that they themselves will not be misled into false worship. So if you if you want to read Leviticus 18, 24 through 25, that's that's exactly what God is communicating. That that if you do not remove these people from the land, you will be led astray. You will worship their gods. And what happens to the Israelites? They go into the land, they don't they don't fulfill what God had told them to fulfill, and then they worship the gods of the people in the land. They worship Molech, they worship the Baals, they worship the Astro the Astroths. And what happens? God sends them out of the land into exile. And so this was, this was the purpose why God told them, you need to remove them of the idolatry so they do not win your hearts and, and they don't do it. And the last thing I would say, right, the, the idea of genocide is that one people group is, is less than or worse than another people group. Um, so if you, if you think about the Holocaust, right, the Jews are... Um, are a lesser kind of people. Or you think of the Hutus and the Tutsis. What God makes clear in Deuteronomy 7, which is the same passage 
where he talks about going into Canaan and destroying the people. There is nothing special about the Israelites. So it's Deuteronomy 7, 7, where it says this, The Lord did not set his love on you, nor chose you, because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you up out of a mi- with a mighty hand and redeemed you. In other words, God is saying, this has nothing to do with you. You are not special. You are not better than anyone. The only thing that makes you special is that I love you and that you are my people. And so that, that is not in the category of racial motivated killing, um, which is what genocide is. It is not an Israelite is better than anyone. It's actually you were the least. You were the fewest. You were the most insignificant. The only reason why you're singing is I love you. One more thing to add into that, and this is from uh, the book The Skeletons in, in God's Clauses by Joshua Ryan Butler, which is when, when the command's given to kill every man, woman, and child, the way narrative works and the way uh, these command works, uh, Joshua Ryan Butler would say, th- that's not literal. Mm-hmm. The actual literal killing of all people is not what's, what's expected of Israel, but the, the thought that, like you're saying, their presence in the land or their presence to Israel would be completely negated. Right. So They're he, not supposed to intermarry. Yes. They're so, not supposed to make covenants, make deals, all these things. So Butler would say, like, that's not actually genocide is not what's being commanded there. And the expectation isn't that everyone would die. And also the cities that are focused on in Joshua, where there is significant destruction, are military cities, which would have been primarily male and for the purpose of protection for Israel long term. So there's a lot here, obviously, and, and we're, we wanted to push into um, into some of the heavier topics, but maybe a kind of a closing question around slavery, genocide, that like these these tough things. Why is it why is it important um, to read your Bible well with uh, with these two issues? So we we talked through them, but why why do we need to read our Bible well when it comes to issues that are are seem so dissonant with our own culture? Yeah, I mean, to me, and and, uh, and you know, I want to hear your thoughts too. But to me, what's at stake is the character of God. Is God unjust? Is God someone who supports a, a wicked form of slavery? Is God arbitrary in just killing a group of people because he's just vindictive, because he's angry? Like that, I mean, there, there's a lot at stake if we read poorly, but when we read well, we we understand what it's trying to tell us about God and about who Israel is. Um, we come up with a picture of God as as just and as gracious, and one who's patient and one who has a plan. Right? Is Israel is is just a plan that gets us to Jesus, where God Himself takes on flesh. Philippians 2 becomes a servant, obedient to death on a cross, suffering more than more than anyone, and then and then raising to the dead. Right? If we do, if we if we can't read in context of all of that, then the character of God is left questionable, and there goes our faith out the window. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think ultimately the question becomes who who is God? And yeah. these moments of dissonance. Too often, it's like, oh, I see the whole picture. I'm moving on. 
rather than this being a moment to ask, okay, what is God doing in Canaan? What what is happening with slavery? And I actually think when you push into those questions, um, God comes out looking not like we can control Him, but we we get a vision of who He is that's really really important. Um, so our hope is you'll continue to um, listen. We we didn't solve these problems. There there's a no. lot here, but hopefully this gave you some some tips, some clues into how to read your Bible better when it comes to things that we read that are really challenging. Uh, so thanks for listening. Uh, we are looking forward to catching you next time on the Shawnee Campus podcast. Peace. <laughs>